Good morning, Keystone. It is good to see you. Uh, man, I uh, was off last week. Uh, my wife and I had a little bit of a few days off, but I missed Sunday, and I was worshiping this morning and just thinking, man, I missed just one Sunday and missed worshiping with you guys. It's good to be in this place. Uh, listen, sometimes when you preach and teach, um, there's a gap between what's going on in the scripture and what's going on in our world. So let's think about it this way. Like if I was preaching through the temple of the Old Testament of the people of Israel, like it's still really important for us to understand that. It has a lot of connections, but we have to make it applicable to today. If we're going through all the genealogies of the Old Testament, you're like, oh man, what about the laws of Leviticus, right? Like those are really important but sometimes making them applicable in today's world as a preacher, you got your jobs, like you got a job to do. It's kind of a, you got to work hard to grab it and put it into today's world. And then there's days like today where what we're going to teach, the words of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount are maybe more applicable today than when Jesus spoke the first time. It's very impactful for us. And if Jesus came into Keystone this morning, he could use the exact same thing he did 2,000 years ago, not change a word, and it land really well in the 21st century in the northern suburbs of Des Moines, Iowa. Just strong. And Jesus' words today for us are incredibly clear, easy to understand. He's gonna tell us, do not worry. Do not worry worry. Simple concept. Three words, do not worry. But if we're honest, this is a very complicated topic. It has a lot of tensions inside of our own souls as we think about it. Um, here's some of the tensions. We all struggle with worry, all of us. What's interesting is like preparing this sermon, you couldn't imagine, like I was tempted to worry about this sermon more than most sermons, right? I don't know if it's just because you kept reading the word worry or what it was, but it's like the smallest things to like, what's gonna happen this afternoon? What are we gonna eat lunch? It's like the small things and then the big things, the massive things, the things that we are scared of. So all of us at the most simple level and some of the most huge life-altering decisions, we all worry. And then we kind of all have a complicated relationship with worry. Here's what I mean. For some of you, for some of us in this room, worry, you would, if you're honest, you would say, it's actually benefited me some, Brent. I've worried about my kids and their education because I worried about it. I found solutions for some answers or some problems that we we're facing. Or I was really worried about this financial thing. So I really spent a lot of time and I solved the problem. And if you're honest, you know Jesus says don't worry. But if you're honest, you're saying, but worry's turned out good for me sometimes. Like I can actually worry about things and solve some problems and prevent some errors. And then some of you, you think it's a good thing for you, but others of you know it's horrible for you. You know the ramifications it's had on your life, and it's as simple as you didn't sleep last night, to ulcers, to stress, to all sorts of anxieties, to all the way to panic attacks. You're like, I know worry's bad for me, Brent. I know it doesn't help me. And so there's this weird gap of worry. And it's a really complicated topic in today's world. 
We all, I just said it at the beginning, there's general worry. All of us struggle at some level with worry in our lives. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the general worry that we carry in our lives. But in the 21st century, we actually have disorders because of worry and anxiety. Preaching this topic as a very pastoral concept. Because here's what I've read on the, online. One third of adults will experience an anxiety disorder in their life at some point. So between you sitting here and the person on the right or left, about one third, one out of every three people in this room, at some point in your life will struggle with an anxiety disorder. You know, like It's a really difficult topic because anxiety disorders are not necessarily what Jesus is talking about. An anxiety disorder comes about because of biological factors or some traumatic life events that alter the way our brains, the chemicals in our brains actually work. And so as we talk about worry, I'm really understanding that when Jesus says, do not worry, some of you have some chemicals in your brains that you're not actually in control of, and it's really difficult. I want to be very clear. Jesus is not speaking to those real disorders that can happen. Jesus is talking about the general worry that most of us in this room face at different points in our life. What Jesus is going to teach, no matter where you're at, can be helpful for you, but we have to be aware of this concept. As we dive into God's words today, Jesus is going to address this sensitive topic. Jesus goes always to the heart of the matter. He's not scared to have any conversation. Jesus's words are clear, but let, let me hear, just please hear this. He is not screaming and shaming you, and neither am I. But what he is going to do is he's inviting us into a way to flourish in the kingdom of God, and help us to recognize that as we go through our life that Jesus is our caretaker and that he cares for us. And as we're going through the difficulties of life, we must train ourselves to look to him. So this is, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. Uh, we've been in just two chapters for a very long time. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, sorry, three chapters. We're kind of wrapping up the end of chapter 6. And I want to read, we're going to start the very beginning in verse 25. It says this, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, you, what you will wear, isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? This text that we're talking about, it has a therefore, and you Bible students know this, if there's a therefore, you ask the questions, what, the, what is the therefore? Therefore, and as what it's doing is it's referring back to what Matt taught us last week. The idea is that no one can serve two masters. You're going to serve God or money. And what's built on all this next thing is it's an assumption that you are going to serve God. And if you're going to serve God, then here is the command Jesus tells us. Do not worry. Don't worry about your life. This phrase, don't worry, is going to be in our text today, three different times. This is the first time he says it. And this don't worry in the original language is in the strongest verb form, which means it's a command. It's an imperative in the original language, which means the whole point of his text is, hey, pay attention. This is the main point of what I'm trying to say. Don't worry. 
This translation, in the translation that we have is don't worry. If you read the ESV, it says don't be anxious. Some of you KJVers, or at least you grew up with it, it would say this, don't or take no thought. Take no thought. It has a really strong concept of a future expectation. It's when we're sitting in a place and there's a future expectation and why in the midst of that tension we have true anxiety and expectations that something would come about. What's interesting is I don't need to explain this phenomenon very, very much. You know it. You know what it feels like to worry. You know when you're looking towards something and there's some sort of anxiety or worry or stirring in your soul that feels really tough. He's like, don't worry about your life. And he explains what he means about by your life. He talked about food and clothing. Food, what you will eat and what you will drink and your clothing, what you put on. Let's talk about food and clothing for a bit. It still brings us anxiety in our lives. What's interesting, though, is he's speaking to a first century people. For them, food and clothing were a survival issue. Think about it like on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Some of you remember that from college or psychology classes. The first level of all of our needs is like physiological needs. We need food, we need clothing, and we need shelter. And when Jesus is speaking to the first century and all of his people following him, they were a hand-to-mouth people. They didn't have bank accounts. They didn't have like a grocery store that they could just go and grab stuff. If their harvest did not turn out, they could very well starve. And so when he's speaking to them, it's really a hand-to-mouth environment. Food is about starvation. Clothing is not about fashion. It could be about exposure to the, to the elements. And for our 21st century mind, we're a few steps higher in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Right? Food, I'm not saying it's not happening, but it's rare in Ankeny that we're dealing with malnutrition or food insecurity. Sure, many of us may have to skip a meal wait for the paycheck to get the grocery store, but most of us have access to food or, or a resource that can help us in that moment. That's not what he's talking about. Here's what's true for us and what's true for this congregation is it's very common that we're dealing with diet and we're worried about our optimal nutrition and we're worried about peak performance and we're worried about what we put in our body and how it will help us perform. It's also very common that we're dealing and we're worrying about overindulgence or addiction to food. It's not the same level, but it's the same message. And then when it comes to clothing, it's very rare that you would be in danger because of exposure. Or that when you came this weekend, when the snow came back and it got cold, that you were in danger of frostbite or losing life because of the cold weather, which would have been very true in Jesus' time. But it's very common that we have anxiety because you don't have the clothes that you want to be most fashionable. Or it's very often that we're worried about our outfit of the day and we're worried about how we're esteemed by other people based on what we wear. And you're worried about fitting in based on the clothes that you wear. It's a different century, but it absolutely plays into some of the worry that we have. Food and clothing, yes, but oh man, what he's teaching is so much potent because we carry so much more worry in our life. And then, he began to give examples of ways that we can get away from the worry that's in our life. Life and how we deal with our life and our food. And he says this, verse 26, consider 
the birds of the sky. Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? Here, in the midst of, like, don't worry, this is something that will get all of us. Jesus, like, goes Nat Geo on us, and he's like, just get outside and look at the birds. Now, here's the thing. Uh, We actually, one of the values of our church is, we stand in awe of, that's embarrassing, okay. Uh, We stand in awe of, God's word. So we're gonna take God's word at truth, and you're not gonna believe this, in this original language, the same verb form that's so important, imperative, is here with consider the birds. He says, don't worry, and he also says, consider the birds, consider the birds. And so Jesus is actually explaining to us, you need to go be a birder. You need to walk outside, and you need to look at some birds. And I'm kind of joking, and I'm kind of not. Because Jesus It says, when you're worrying, here's what I know you've checked out, or at least in our culture, here's what I know you've checked out. When you have worry in your mind, most of us have checked out Google for the answers that we desire. Like, whatever we're worrying about, we have gone and Google, and oftentimes Google knows you so well, you can say how to, and then you have a worry, and it'll actually autofill it for you because it knows what you're worried about. The algorithms of your social media streams, I promise you, is perfectly curated to your biggest worry. (laughs) You just thumb up and you're watching the reels, you're watching the stories, and it's perfectly curated because you're gonna check out other advices. You're gonna check out your friends. What do you think I should do? And what Jesus says is what I think you should do is step outside and go look at the birds. Go check out the birds. This is not a silly silly or abstract concept to me. This is actually something that I do in my life as a practice a lot. About 10 or plus years ago, I read an article by Martin Luther over this text, like the reformer Martin Luther. And it was so convicting to me. He's like, listen, you know so much of the Bible, but you just need to look at the birds because they should be your schoolmasters. And the idea here is look at the birds. Um, I wouldn't consider myself a birder, as it were, because I think they're kind of nerdy and usually old. Um, But I would tell you this, I have an app and I track birds. So I don't know what that makes me. Um, But I will tell you this, my wife and I were just in Arizona for a few days, which is to get out of the the winter in Iowa. And uh, while I was there, I added 12 birds to my life list. Because here's what I do, it really is a practice for me to go and watch birds and figure them out. My wife and I watched the sunrise every morning. And as we were, right, we were on this porch and we would watch them and I spotted so many birds that were just flying around. Everything they need was given to them. We went on a hike, I noticed multiple new species of birds because they're like literally in the desert, buried in cactuses and they're taken care of. And here's why. Because he says it here. They don't sow and they don't reap. The idea when he says this is this. The birds, they do nothing. They don't go plant their crops, work their fields, really stress about their income. Still yet, God provides everything they need. Without any activity of their own, God provides for them. I want to show you a picture. The other day, me and Matt were... uh, 
and meeting in my, meeting in my office, and all of a sudden, a huge hawk flies down, and we both pop up, and I, I was like, sorry, Matt, this, is, this conversation's over. Again, I'm not a birder, but I really like him, okay? So, um, so this, and we pop up, and we go, I wonder if he got anything. He hit the ground right outside of my office, and he popped back up, and he hits on the top of this uh, light post. Zoom in really quickly. Look what he got. He got a mouse. It was super cool to watch, by the way. A red-tailed hawk flies out of the sky. Here's what's true about that red-tailed hawk. He didn't go to work and figure that out. He didn't plant that seed. He didn't stress about it. God, in his whole economy, made it that all he had to do was fly and get it. God provided everything that hawk needed. And that's the idea of the birds. And when we watch the birds, you can just notice, oh my goodness, they don't stress. They don't plant and they don't go to work. But still, and God provides everything that they need. And he gives us this challenge. You can't add one moment to your life by worry. You can't do it. God provides everything we need. And if you're not a birder, maybe you're a botanist or a flower or a gardener. I don't know. I don't, I'm not into that stuff. I'm just into birds. But look what he says about the wildflowers in verse 28. And why do you worry about clothes? Why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow and they don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? Observe the wildflowers. Some of you maybe some translations, the lilies of the field. They're beautiful. In fact, they're more beautiful than Solomon, which was kind of like the apex of wealth and all the things of the nation of Israel. In the wild we'll actually see flowers blooming. But eventually, they get burned up. They go away. My own front, the front of my house, we have planters next to my garage, and every spring we have to go and we get flowers, and they're absolutely beautiful, but you know just like I do, they're beautiful for a moment. And then you don't fix them, or by the end of the season, they're gonna die. And what God is trying to say, or Jesus is trying to say, is look at these flowers, they're beautiful. And their life is but for a moment. And if God makes them as beautiful as they are, even though their lifespan is this short and they don't have a soul, if he cares that much about flowers, how much more does he care about you? Oh, you, you of little faith. With no effort on its part, it's beautiful, even though it lasts for such a short time. In both examples, he's trying to say, look at my created order. Look at the things I created, the way I established the world. I take care of it. And then he comes with some of the teaching. Verse 31, so don't worry. Second time it said, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for the Gentiles? Eagerly seek all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. Again, that don't worry is the second time it's put in our, in our scripture. Don't worry about what you eat and what you're going to wear and all that stuff. And then he uses an example of Gentiles. He says, actually, the Gentiles eagerly seek these things. This is really important. Uh, if you've been around uh, the Bible at all, Gentiles is a common term. <clears throat> but we need to make actually an, a distinction here. Because in 
when Jesus is speaking on the Sermon on the Mountain, he's saying Gentiles, and that is all, they're ethnically different than Jews. That anyone who is not a Jew is a Gentile. They are ethnically different, and honestly, the Jews hated them. They were like, these are godless people. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, they're always a bad example because what Jesus says is like, this is how people who don't know God act. Now later on in the Bible, we actually find out that Jesus came to die not just for the Jews but also the Gentiles. So this is actually later on in the New Testament, the Gentiles are brought in and even the godless can become godly by faith in Christ. But here he's like, the Gentiles that he's talking about are those who do not know God. And look what they do. The godless pagans, these Gentiles, they eagerly seek after these things. I wanna break something down for you. This word, eagerly seek, is a compound word. It's a mixture of two words, which is zeteo, which is seek, and epi, which is the preposition stuck on the front of it. So this word that is eagerly seek is epizeteo. Zeteo means seek, epi means upon, it's a preposition, and the idea is seek upon seek upon seek upon seek. It's someone who has to constantly keep seeking. It's eagerly seeking, and I'm gonna call that eagerly seeking striving. It's someone who is striving, they're seeking on steroids, and they struggle with great effect for a solution in their life. And the idea is this, people who don't know God are forced to strive for the things that they need. They're forced to strive for it. The only source to their problem is their self. And so they wake up knowing, I've gotta solve this problem, I gotta go fix it. And the tragedy here is this, what he says at the very end of that verse, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. What's a tragedy is that the Gentiles have to go get it when the reality is, is that God knows everything they need. Because when you don't know God or his character, you have to strive for a solution. You gotta fix it yourself. But then, look where he points us. We're gonna move to verse 33, and the idea switches. It's like, if you don't know God and his character, you gotta strive to fix your solution, but if you know God and his character, you seek, look at verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of his own. Seek first the kingdom of God. Here, that word seek is actually just the word by itself, zeteo. It's not seek upon seek upon seek and strive and go get it and figure it out. It's actually seek first, relax. Seek first the kingdom of God of God, the first thing that we seek is not a solution that we have to figure out, it's actually we seek God and his kingdom is righteousness. His kingdom is his rule and his care. God, how do you rule the world? Do you care about me? And then his righteousness, which is his ways. We seek God. Now here's the thing, a lot of you in this room if you saw someone struggling, you are smart enough in the Bible and in Scripture to be able to give, give some advice to people. We'll just seek God. But that's a really abstract concept. I want to try to like 
pull it down to earth a little bit for us. How do you seek God? First thing is this. Posture, it's the posture of your heart. It's the posture of your heart, which is kind of related to the kingdom of God. Like, what does your heart do when you're in a worrying situation? You need to adjust the posture of your heart. I'm gonna read Psalm 46.10, or Psalm 46, one to two and then 10, because I think this ex explains it really well. I'm gonna read it in the New American Standard version of the Bible because I love the wording, especially as it's tied to this. Verse one and two of 46 is like basically all hell is breaking loose and everything is horrible in this person's life. It says this, God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Verse two says this, therefore we will not fear though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea when everything is falling apart. And later in verse 10, this is what it says, cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. There's a reality as we seek that our posture is, God, I'm gonna slow down and I'm gonna cease striving and I am gonna look up to you because you are the one who holds it all. But it's not just the posture of our heart where we're like, God, I'm actually looking to you. I'm not looking to myself. It's also the action of your life, which is really tied to his righteousness. We need to live out his way. There's a lot of worry in our lives, brothers and sisters, because we live on our own and we try to solve our own problems and we do not even remotely look to God for the ways that we should walk. We've figured out our own paths. We didn't even look at the path that God would want for us. You have to live out his ways. It's a question that's as simple as this. God, what would you say about blank? Not what is my friends, not what is my emotions screaming at me, but God, what do you say about whatever's worrying you? Because I know, again, a lot of us know exactly what the pro professional advice is, we know what Google says, we know what our friends say, but very few of us in moments of worry in our life have said, God, what do you say about this? What do you say? It's gonna take just a little bit of humility in your life to admit that you might not know. <laughs> Or maybe the culture has discipled you more than the scripture. And to go seek out his ways. In fact, that's one, if you go on our website, we have now a thing called the Know and Follow Library because a lot of life is really complicated and we actually put Bible reading plans for a lot of the areas in life and we're constantly updating that because we wanna say, God, what do you say about my marriage, about my parenting, about depression, all these things in our life because we actually wanna see what God's word has to say. You have to seek God and not strive. So he said, what's bringing you worry? Jesus' audience, he was talking about survival because that was what was worrying them. Are you gonna have enough to eat? Are you gonna have some clothes so you don't get cold in the winter? But for the Keystone audience, I'm assuming that that's what the, not the majority of you are wrestling with, but you're wrestling with your health dealing with sickness or caring for the physical needs of others. There's something with your body that's not working and you're worried about it. It's our job or our schooling. We're constantly worried about how much we can make or am I fulfilled in the role that I am or how beyond our job and schooling, the relationships we have. There is significant worry in this room because of relationships in your life. And that could be because of a broken relationship a roommate squabble, 
husband and wife, the desire for a husband and wife, family drama. Like, you don't have to be a pastor very long. That is an epicenter of our worry. Then about our esteem, how we wanna be seen. Do you know how much suburbanites care about what people think about them? And the worry that that brings, do they approve of my parenting? Do they approve of the way my house looks? Do they approve of the clothes I wear, the cars I drive? That worry that lives inside of us. How do we move past that? I wanna give you a couple of illustrations that I hope will take a concept that's like, yeah, it's an easy answer, Brent. I've heard it my whole life, seek God. I wanna to try to give you two illustrations that will help you. The first one, I'm calling the pit of worry. If you wanna throw that up there really quickly. This is a good, to the, I wrestled with this a lot as I was teaching this sermon. Like how in the world do we talk about it? On the far left is where we are. Maybe that's, you don't have the money you want, you don't have the relationship you want, wherever you're at in your life, and then all the way to the right is what we want. Notice that he's dancing because he's happy, right? What we want in life. And there is often a gap, somebody say amen. There's often a massive gap, and sometimes it's not our fault, and sometimes it is our fault. And what I call the pit of worry is when there is a gap between where we are and where we want, and most of us get stuck in that pit of worry. And what Jesus teaches here in this pit of worry is that there's really two different options that you have when you find yourself in the pit of worry. We can either seek or we can strive. When you find something deep buried inside your heart and you wake up in the middle of the night, you're like, what do I do with that? When you interact with someone, you're like, I don't know what to do with that. When you're walking into a, relation or a direct report with your boss and I don't know what to do with that, in that moment, I know this is oversimplified, but I think it's gonna be helpful. You can either seek God or you can strive for a solution. And I would argue that this room is probably much better at striving than seeking. And I'm just, I'm just talking about myself. I'm not even talking about you. Let's talk about how, let's walk that out. Let me give you some examples of what, let's talk about, again, what Jesus talked about, food and body. Let's talk about striving for a second. If you're worried about your food and your body, maybe we would strive for solutions. And when we're striving for solutions, you go get a gym membership. You go get new workout clothes because that's really important if you're gonna be in shape that you look really good. Somebody say amen, right? You look at the scales and you measure every day. Am I worthy? Did I, do I look good enough? And then you worry about how many cheat meals and you're counting everything and you're striving again. None of that is evil, by the way. But it can often be a result of deep striving. And the difference would be is that if you're gonna seek God, maybe you seek God and you're like, God, what do you say about my body? What do you say about my health? And you would be reminded, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You would remember that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is not the Holy Spirit. And that you are to glorify God in your body. You'd also remember that teaching of Paul. He says, physical training is of some value. It's of some value. I give you that. But it's not of ultimate value. Because we would seek God. And then you would bring those concerns that, God, I bring all that before you. Maybe you would seek God and say, connection group, I need some help because I'm off on this and I'm struggling with this. Do you see the difference? One is completely up to you to solve the problem. The other one is, God, I'm going to seek you. Let's talk about our finances. 
striving for solutions. Maybe you came up short this month. Maybe a big tax bill is coming your way and you could stress and you could be like, I've got to strive. I've got to eagerly seek this. And so you all of a sudden go into over control. You check your account balances daily. You snap at your spouse every time they spend. You live in anxiety and you're like, maybe I need to get another job. Maybe we should cut this. And you start striving and trying to solve all your problems. And it creates conflict. It creates hiding spending. Or you could seek God. God, what do you say about my money? Maybe you would pray, God, this is what we need. You'd ask, maybe even fast, God, what? We just said all this about fasting and praying just right before this in the Sermon on the Mount. God, we're gonna seek you and we're asking you to provide. Maybe you have to learn about what God says and you begin to open the scriptures. Maybe you need to come to the stewardship equipping that Randy's gonna be teaching recently. And you go, God, what do I, how do I need to think about my money? Because maybe I've messed up or maybe I've made a wrong decision, but primarily, God, I want to seek you. And again, it's not that it's wrong to check your balances and be a good steward, but at a heart issue, are you striving or are you seeking God? My guess is it's easy for you to tell. Am I striving for it or am I seeking God? Now, the pit of worry makes striving and seeking so different. When I draw that definition, you know, it it looks so easy, like, oh, I'm either striving or I'm seeking, but the reality in our lives, Christian lives, striving and seeking can almost look identical. Identical. Let me show you this last illustration. I want to put up two boats. Boat number one is the SS Strive. <laughs> boat number two is the SS Seek. And if you look at these boats on the screen, they look almost completely identical. And what I want to suggest to you, and one of the biggest pastoral concerns I have in this room right now, is that most of the time, striving and seeking look identical. identical. In our culture, brothers and sisters, striving is celebrated. It's celebrated way more than seeking. In fact, For some of you, again, some of our complications with this issue is, is striving has worked out well for some of you. It got you the promotion. It got you better grades. It makes you look better as a parent because you have worked hard and you've stayed up all night and you have worked and worked and worked. But then we go to think about seeking. It's the thing that we're supposed to do as all Christians, but very few people, it's private. No one's gonna know if you're seeking God. The suburbs will cheer you on to strive to death. So I wanna put the boats back to where we are. So if you come over here to the left, it's where we are, right? We're in the middle of the ocean. It's a black ocean. It's really dark. (laughs) Um, And then over here is the island. It's where we wanna be. We're Iowans in February. We all wanna be on the island. Somebody say amen, right? We want the sun, Where we are versus where we want to be, in the middle of the ocean. Very few people will know if there's any difference in your life between striving and seeking. It's not something that it's, it's not a blazing open sin. 
And again, most of the time in our culture, it will get cheered on. You're just taking care of business. You're just doing everything right. It'll get cheered on. But here's what I want to show you. And this is the absolute invitation of this sermon. Look what happens if you put this out. You might not have noticed it, but strive is off literally five degrees. Five degrees. It looks almost identical to seeking. But I'm telling you right now, I might not ever be able to know. Your spouse might not ever be able to know. Your connection group might not ever be to know. But if inside your own soul you're striving, let me tell you what's going to happen. In your brain, you're going to convince yourself you're going to get where you want to go. But I'm just telling you, you're going to miss it. If we seek first the kingdom of God and all of his righteousness, all these things will be added us. The things that we want, the things that we need, we will receive it. But if we strive, brother and sister, it's gonna feel like you're gonna get God and you're gonna get all things. But I'm just telling you, you're gonna find yourself in the middle of the ocean and all of it determines on your heart. Are you seeking God? Or are you striving for solutions? Last point, it's on the screen. Strive for solutions and get worried. Seek God and you get all things. You seek for solutions or you strive for solutions, you're gonna get it, worry. You're gonna get stress. But if you seek God, you're gonna get all things. Would you bow with me? I just want to say a few things before I pray. First is this. Being res- we're not talking about not being responsible. I promise you, when you seek God, there's some things you're going to have to do. But at the end of the day, you were not created to solve your problems for yourself. You were created to be in a relationship with God who cares for you. You're made in his image. And once you know him and you're in a relationship, there might be a million things he asks you to do. And do those. But what I'm talking about is the first step you take when you're in the pit of worry. Do you try to dig out yourself? Do you try to climb those walls? I can solve this. Or do you stop and seek God? Once you meet with God, his word's clear. He gives a lot of directions, a lot of things to do. But it's at the heart level, what do you do first? What do you do when you're in the pit of worry? For some in this room, this isn't just a matter of how we walk it out with God. There's been worry that's overflowed your soul and you're like, I can't imagine a God who loves me and cares for me and wants to provide for me because you don't have a relationship with God. And your pit of worry is actually a pit of sin because you don't have a relationship with him. And listen, brother or sister, you cannot climb out You cannot perform well enough. You cannot do enough good things to get out of that pit. But you just have to seek God. God, I'm gonna seek you. And here's what the scripture says, that Jesus Christ came and died a perfect death and provided a way for you to have a relationship with God. So this morning, the worry that you have about sin can only be solved by faith in Christ alone. And maybe that's a step you need to take today. Let me pray for us. God, 
We are a room of strivers. We carry more anxieties than you designed us to carry. And I pray in this moment that there wouldn't be guilt and shame, but there would be a Holy Spirit invitation for us to walk with the God of all creation who provides everything we need, who is a good father to take care of us. God, would you reorient our hearts to not solve our own problems, but to seek the God of all creation. In Jesus' name I pray.